Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to Zoe Community Church. In case you don't know me or you're new here, my name is James. I'm one of the pastors here. If you have your Bibles or your phones with you, I encourage you to take them out and follow along in the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes, right in the middle of your Bible, just past Psalms and Proverbs. And if you are new, uh, you're, we welcome you here, and uh, you've come at a good time, because we take these long series through books of the Bible, verse by verse, and we're kind of right at the beginning of this book that'll take us a few months. We're only three weeks in, so you can catch up pretty quickly. But Ecclesiastes started off with a bang, all right? Just to kind of summarize, the thesis statement in verse 2 is that all is vanity. This Hebrew word, hevel, is a recurring theme of the book, and it means breath or vapor. It's something fleeting, something without substance that you can't hold on to. And from verses 2 through 11, which we saw last week, the preacher, the author of this book, has showed us in a poetic introduction how all the ways of the earth, the natural ways, are are hevel, without purpose, observing that there's this natural, relentlessly cyclical cycle that the world goes through. Now, in our passage today, we will move from poetry to prose as the preacher starts his discourse in earnest, turning from his observations of the world to his own real-life experiences within this world. The preacher thought, since there is no meaning in the tiresome repetitiveness of the world's natural order, then maybe, just maybe there's meaning at least in what we choose to do in it. Maybe humankind can break that cycle of meaningless because we have the ability and the agency to do and to make and to change things. And so if only he could talk to the right people, learn the right skills, or uncover the right mentality, then maybe he could explain life and find its meaning and write it down here for all of us to see. Toward the end of my time in college at UCLA, after years of studying computer science, I realized there were so many other fields and majors that I knew absolutely nothing about, And so I did something that will show you just how much of a nerd I am. There was a time, there was a term in the fall semester when I had no class on Tuesdays. And so I picked one week where on that day off, instead of just sleeping in or doing whatever college students do, I decided to do something really fun that day. I went to class. I dubbed it the UCLA Project when I blogged about it because blogging was all the rage back then. And my goal for the day was to visit nine classes from nine different majors in nine different buildings on campus over the course of nine hours. And so I went onto the registrar website. I figured out the perfect schedule with a huge variety of subjects. And on October 4th, so actually 18 years almost to the day, 2005, I woke up at 6.45 a.m. on a day I had no class and went to sit in on classes from 8 to 5, no lunch break. I visited classes like Anthropology 130, The Study of Culture, Phi-Sci, Physical Sciences 107, Systems Anatomy, Philosophy 21, Skepticism and Rationality, Comp Lit, Comparative Literature 2AW, Literature from Antiquity to the Middle Ages, Biochem 153A, Structures, Enzymes, and Metabolism, and Women's Studies M114, Introduction to LGBT Studies. No QIA in those days. The UCLA project was me wanting to expand my mind and see what was out there. Just have a bit of fun adventure in my nerdy mind. And who knows, maybe I'd hit on something new and exciting and in my fourth year of college change majors. Maybe I'd learn something, change my perspective, gain some knowledge. At the very least, I'd get some sweet, sweet likes and subscribes on my blog. Back then they were called EPROPs. 
In a very small way, I was doing what the preacher did. I had the UCLA project. Commentators have called this passage the royal experiment. The royal experiment, Ecclesiastes 1, 12 through 18. And through his own period of exploration here, the preacher was determined to expand his knowledge in order to figure out what, if anything, matters on this earth. So let me read this for us, the preacher's testimony from Ecclesiastes 1, starting in verse 12. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. This is the word of God. Will you bow with me in prayer? Lord, we come before you acknowledging that you are God, holy, sovereign, and almighty over all things. And so acknowledging that and acknowledging our humanity, our sinfulness, the limitations of our human mind, we ask this day that your spirit, who is in us who believe, would help us to see and hear and to learn and know and understand what true knowledge is and what hope there is for humanity. So Lord, I ask your spirit would help me now as, as I preach and your spirit would help us to hear and receive that we would respond together as your church and as your people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The king was on a quest to figure out life and he began by asking, can I know enough to be satisfied? His pursuit in this text is knowledge. And as the saying goes, you don't know what you don't know. And to that, the preacher says, ha, not me. I'll just go learn what I don't know. And then when I know what I don't know, I'll learn that. And he did. He went on a journey of discovery, observing and analyzing everything under the sun to perform his own analysis. I'm sure most of you have read about or even used AI or chat GPT. If you don't understand it, I'll explain it real simply for you. Just know the way machine learning works and why AI seems so smart is basically the more input and training data you give it, the more it has to work with and analyze in order to compute a more accurate output, okay? The comprehensive data catalog from everything up till 2021, I think, that is in ChatGPT allows it to be smart, that we perceive it to be smart, that it knows a lot, it can analyze these things and give you some answers. The more people who fill out password captures and click on enough crosswalks and traffic lights and bicycles, that input will result in better trained self-driving cars in the future to recognize traffic lights, bicycles, and crosswalks. More input, better output. And to extend that to its logical end, complete input, perfect output. That's the preacher's goal. By taking in all the data, in his case, every human experience under the sun, he can arrive, hopefully, at the right answer to the meaning of life. 
And so the sermon today only has two points. It actually follows the structure of the text, which can be split into two, because in it we find two searches, which may have been sequential or might just be two perspectives of the same search in his lifetime. Either way, we find two explorations described first in verses 12 through 15, and secondly in verses 16 through 18. And each section concludes with a proverb, verse 15 and verse 18. That's the ending of each search. That's a summary statement. But imagine if you went home, and asked ChatGPT, what is the meaning of life? And it thought for 20 seconds and typed back to you, verse 15, what is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. Or if you asked AI, what is the purpose of mankind's existence? And it spat back, verse 18, for in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. You'd think the developers at OpenAI have to get back to the drawing board. Right? What data did they feed in? Bad fortune cookies? These proverbs seem so incongruous with the situation. They're just out of left field on your first read-through. And so we have our work cut out for us today, right? To see if we can make sense of this text and arrive at the same conclusions that the preacher did. So first, verses 12 through 15, we'll look at the preacher's quest of wisdom. His quest of wisdom, if you want to title it. In this section, he says that he tried and pursued literally everything on earth. And he could because he was the king. Verse 12, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. Now, he's already introduced himself back in verse 1. And for the full explanation, you can stream the first sermon online. But here he restates that he is the preacher, or in Hebrew, kohelet, which means the one who assembles, the collector, the gatherer. In the Greek Septuagint, the translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, he is the ecclesiastes, which is where we get the title of the book. And in that word, you hear the root ecclesia, which means a gathering or assembly. He's the one who assembles, who gathers, who puts together. As the king, he assembles his people to teach these truths. But it's not just people. He also collects proverbs and wisdom, as you see at the end of chapter 12. That's kind of his thing, his hobby. And he has also amassed knowledge, as we will see later on in this text. Now, although his identity is never explicitly given, multiple signs point to King Solomon, the wisest and richest man ever, the son of David, ruling in Jerusalem. His royalty is important here in that it reminds us that he has all the means to go after this pursuit. He has the position, the power, the prestige, and the prosperity to really go and explore everything to do what he did. And so here is the royal experiment, verse 13. And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. He applied his heart. We can't skip over this phrase because it will show up again later as well. Your heart is your inner being. It's your mind, your will, your emotions, all of who you are intrinsically. And so this was a personal venture for the preacher, for the king. It's his passion project, if you will. His whole heart is poured into this. It wasn't a casual one-time eight-to-five affair just for kicks and for clicks. It was, for a period, the central focus of his life's work. It was a total commitment of himself for uh, all his time, all his faculties, all his abilities, including, if this is Solomon, and we believe it is, his one special stat that had been maxed out by God himself, his wisdom. He says to seek and search out by wisdom. He will use his wisdom, being uniquely qualified with it for this task, to help him seek, 
to look intently and thoroughly investigate this matter, to help him search out, which is exploration terminology. It's the same word used to describe the Israelite spies going to the land of Canaan. He's going to go in and and look around and figure out what's going on. He's an intrepid explorer on a quest of discovery. And the object of his search, verse 13, all that is done. All the doings under heaven. He wanted to observe every activity in the world, every work, deed, and action, every business and occupation, every pleasure and recreation, every lifestyle. A few months ago, I met a girl in California who lives on a sailboat in the harbor. Not sailing and living aboard at sea, but the docked boat is literally her home. Not a yacht either. Her slip fee is her rent. And every worldly possession she has is on that boat. Now, a month after I met her, I saw an article in Business Insider about another couple who lives in a 30-foot boat in Marina del Rey. I'm thinking, who, who knew there were all these people out there living on boats? And who, else, who knows what else is out there, right? It's not just me in college exploring different degrees and majors that I've never heard of. Even today, we'd be naive to deny the fact that there are other religions and whole other worldviews that we've never heard of. There are sexual orientations you've never heard of. There are drugs and websites and services that you've never heard of. There are cultures and fashion and music and art and food that you've never heard of. Don't you just want to know what's out there and experience some of it, to see it and to try it? There's a big out there, isn't there? And if I'm not happy with what I know or who I am, maybe somebody else is, and I just need to find them. Maybe the answer is boats. Who knows? The preacher's goal was everything under heaven, verse 13, and everything under the sun, verse 14. He left no stone unturned. He took on a worm's eye view, mingling with the common folk to observe how does man operate and conduct himself in this world under the sun. The preacher wanted to see it all because he wanted to know what am I missing? What are my options? Did anybody get it right? I watched the season premiere of Shark Tank last week. I'm sure some of you have seen the show or clips of it. I don't regularly watch, but I wanted to because my old boss was on there, uh, not as an entrepreneur, but actually as a guest shark. And if you don't know, Shark Tank is a reality show where budding business owners, small business owners, and entrepreneurs come before a panel of multi-millionaire venture capitalists and present their product or company to see if they're worthy of receiving an investment. And the sharks, these investors, negotiate with each other and with the individual to acquire the best concepts for themselves. And as I watched, I realized their questions and goals are exactly the same as the preacher's. Can anyone be found who does good work? Has anyone actually discovered something new and come up with a new invention under the sun? Is anyone living in a meaningful way, accomplishing something worth getting behind to transform society, a name worthy of remembering forever? And can I get behind it and do that? But the preacher's perspective would make for very poor reality TV, am I right? Verse 13, it is, middle of verse 13, it is an unhappy business, an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. And because of that, I'm out. 
he'd make a terrible shark. His conclusion is that not one person, not one job, not one human activity is worth it. It is all unhappy business. The adjective in this phrase, unhappy business, is rock, which is the word for evil. Evil, as in Genesis, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. All right? Evil, as in every intention of the thoughts of man's heart, was only evil continually. It is the word for evil, okay? But yes, this word also has a range of meaning. But even if at worst life is morally evil, at best it's still just objectively bad. If you look at the different English Bible versions of this phrase, unhappy business, the translations run the whole gamut. I will read almost all of them to you. A heavy burden, a sorry task, a miserable affair, a painful occupation, a grievous endeavor, a tragic existence, a terrible fate, or as my Hebrew professor puts it colloquially, a lousy job. That's this life. That's the preacher's definitive definition of life on earth. Consider this for yourself. If your life consists of waking up at a miserable time of morning to make a commute that you dread, to slave away at an unfulfilling job with people you don't actually like, and then you have to come home to prepare a meal you don't have the energy to enjoy, only to clean up and get ready for the next day, all the while suffering the guilt of missing another workout or time with the Lord. And if you consider that all of that takes up 16 to 20 hours of your day for five to six days a week, for 50 weeks out of the year, for 50 years of your life. Are you feeling Ecclesiastes yet? This is your life. This is your life. Your life is a miserable affair that will occupy and trouble you until you die. Ecclesiastes. What a frustrating, wearying, difficult lot in life, in life that God has given for us. And yes, God has given it to us. It's from his hand. Verse 13 is clear. God gave it to the children of man. And shockingly, this is the first mention of God in the book. Is this his perspective of who the Lord is? It sounds almost accusatory, doesn't it? That our futility is all God's doing? But this actually reveals that the preacher understood the sovereignty, power, and activity of God behind everything. He acknowledges God's hand in it all. Turn with me back to Psalm 90. Psalm 90, a couple books back. Keep your finger in Ecclesiastes. But I want to show you somewhere else in Scripture that says the same thing. Psalm 90. I'm going to begin starting in verse 9. Verse 9 says, For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, and for as many years as we have seen evil. 
Psalm 90 recognizes our troubles and afflictions and the evil of this earthly life. It acknowledges God's wrath and his anger, but it also pleads to God for wisdom and for favor. The psalmist laments over the affliction that is living while acknowledging God's hand over it all. And you know who wrote this psalm? It wasn't David, Solomon's father. It was Moses. Moses is the author of Psalm 90. 500 years before Solomon, the humblest man in history was saying the same things that the wisest man in history would later say. Solomon's conclusion itself was nothing new under the sun. It's what Moses had recorded long ago for posterity, that all our days, our toil and trouble, lived under God's affliction. And it goes back earlier than that. Flip back to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Verse 13 talks about the children of man, literally the sons of Adam. Sons of Adam. Adam is the word for man. And that's just the common word, so the connection is subtle and maybe unintentional, but perhaps not. We are reminded when we read this word that we are all children of Adam, who having sinned in Genesis 3 was cursed with what? Toil. Work and pain and sweat all the days of his life. And as his children, the curse of sin has held true from Adam to Moses to Solomon to now. We live under the curse of affliction and toil. We have seen and experienced this evil because of sin. And this is what the preacher concluded. Having gone and observed all the works of man, mission accomplished, all the data has been gathered in, collected, discovered, seen, processed, and his verdict here is verse 14, all is vanity. He has witnessed the human condition of sin and evil and all the brokenness of the world because of sin and concluded that all is vanity, hevel, a breath, and a vapor. I was reading Beatrix Potter with my kids last week, and one of Peter Rabbit's less famous companions is Squirrel Nutkin. And in his story, Squirrel Nutkin annoys a wise old owl with his incessant riddles, and he eventually gets his tail clawed off as a result, and that's literally the whole story. But this is one of his riddles. A houseful, a holeful, and you cannot gather a bowlful. A houseful, a holeful, and you cannot gather a bowlful. And the answer is smoke. Smoke, vapor, that's hevel. You can't catch smoke in a bowl. Even in a house filled with it, you can't collect it. Hevel is a product of the curse of sin. Think about it this way. Was everything under the sun, after the sun was created and the earth was created, was everything under the sun vanity before Genesis 3? Of course not. Back in the Garden of Eden, Adam's life had purpose and meaning. He named the animals and he was meant to rule them all. He walked in the presence of God. His mission was to be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. His life had a God-given purpose and it was good. But all of it changed in the fall. When Adam sinned, humanity plunged into the throes of evil, the world fell into decay, and the curse and sting of death for the first time reared its ugly head and everything became hevel. Sin made life an unhappy business, indeed. And so the search for meaning became a frustrating puzzle with no solution. You see, the preacher wanted to figure it all out, but then he realized you can't. If you skip forward to Ecclesiastes 8, just for a second, and we'll preach this a few months down the line, 8.16, he reflects back on this search and he says, When I applied my heart to know wisdom, 
and to see the business that is done on earth? How neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep? Then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. So truth be told, it wasn't mission accomplished after all. It can't be done. For all my bountiful wisdom and concerted effort and relentless toil, he says, no one can ever understand the work of God. And so he concludes back in chapter 1 with a proverb, verse 15. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. The point is this, despite all of his knowledge, man cannot understand or change what God has done. For all his knowledge, man can neither understand nor change what God has done. And to attempt to do so and to think you can is hevel, because what is crooked cannot be made straight. I grow grapes in our backyard, and the trick to growing grapes is that you have to train the vine for the following year, because fruit only grows on one-year-old vines. So every year you get fruit on last year's vines, and then the new shoots from this year will be the vines that next year's fruit grows on. And over the winter during the dormant phase, those flexible green vines become wooden, and they harden into thick brown branches that you call canes. And so if you don't train your vine on the trellis the way it should go during that first year, once they harden into canes over the winter, there's no going back. And you can't just take a bent cane and make it straight again or it'll snap. In Ecclesiastes 7.13, the preacher explicitly brings God into this proverb, saying, consider the work of God who can make straight what he has made crooked. The point is, if God has made something crooked, it can't be changed by human will or force. If God's hand has done it, it cannot be undone. And so if God's hand condemned us to this sad fate, then that's it. Human wisdom cannot set this life back in order. The only thing wisdom can do, if you're the wisest man, is discover how disorderly life actually is and then resign yourself to it. Wisdom can discover things but cannot change things. Wisdom can observe this life but cannot fix its problems. And so now the preacher knows but can't do anything about it. And the proverb ends, what is lacking cannot be counted. That is to say, there is an unquantifiable, unknowable deficiency in our human wisdom. Today, we like to think of debt as quantifiable, right? If you have credit card debt or a mortgage or student loans, you know this. You can calculate at any time the amount you owe down to the penny. We know how having a negative balance works. Our financial debt is numerable. But what if I asked you, how many cars don't you have? And you'd say, well, our family has two cars. And I said, I didn't ask that. I asked, how many cars don't you have? The answer is all of the cars. I don't have all sorts of cars. I don't have a Bentley. I don't have a Maserati. I literally don't have all the cars in the world except the two that I have by the Lord's providence. It's kind of a foolish question, isn't it? How many dollars don't you have? Not how much are you in debt. You don't have all the dollars. How many friends don't you have? How much knowledge don't you have? It's innumerable. What is lacking cannot be counted. The point of the proverb is to recognize the depths of our deficiency, how far short our wisdom falls, how wanting our experience and knowledge will always prove to be. That means for us, life will always be unsolvable, like a puzzle with missing pieces, a mystery without enough clues, 
an escape room with faulty components damaged by the last group so you can't get out. All our knowledge is inadequate to repair the brokenness of sin. All our wisdom is insufficient to heal the human condition, to remove our miseries, and not by a mile, not even by light years, it's insufficient by an unfathomable amount. And that's why after exploring the whole world, the preacher still failed to understand it. He was pushing up against the ceiling of human wisdom with problems he couldn't solve, errors he couldn't correct, griefs he couldn't rectify. He'd taken every possibility and keyed in all of the data, and he was hoping for complete input, perfect output. But when he hit return, all he got was a pound sign N slash A for you Excel users out there. Calculation error. One thing he knew for sure was that the hand of God was in it. That was his takeaway. God has done this. And so we need to stop struggling to make meaning out of life. Brothers and sisters, if you are questioning your career, maybe your living situation, your financial habits, your relationships, I want you to stop for a minute and think about what it is that you're actually searching for. It's not wrong not necessarily sinful to want to change some of these things or to make your life better. God can provide through these things. But the warning is, if you're undertaking these things or desiring for these things in search of meaning or fulfillment or purpose, then be careful. Because all of these good things can actually easily become distractions at best and idols at worst. You will never find meaning or fulfillment at a better job. The guy who has that job right now could tell you how he feels about it. And if you do, then that's an idol. You're finding your satisfaction in the wrong place. And yet, you may think the grass is greener on the other side. We need to remember that the other side is still on this side of the sun. The greener side is still on the same side, sun-wise. You're still looking under the sun. And yet every generation tries to know more and search more in order to discover the good thing that gives us purpose, don't we? And every generation looks at the other generations and accuses them of doing just that. Those selfish boomers, we say, those worldly Gen Xers, those entitled millennials, those impulsive Zoomers. But in reality, every generation just has simply done exactly the same thing, searching the world for purpose and meaning in their own way. But we start getting on the right track, don't we? When we acknowledge God is Lord over it all. God is faithful in every generation. He alone can straighten. He alone has no lack. Romans 11.33 says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Brothers and sisters, the answer is one you may have well known since childhood. The answer is to trust in the Lord with all your heart. To apply your heart as the preacher did, but to do so in trusting God and setting your hope and your heart on him alone. The answer is to not lean on your own understanding, to not depend on your own knowledge or your interpretation of the world. The answer is to, in all your ways, in all your doings under heaven, 
Acknowledge him. Glorify him. Submit your life to him. And he will what? Make your paths straight. Only the hand of God can do it. So first, the preacher tried everything in his great quest of wisdom. He conducted his search by wisdom, as we saw in verse 13. Wisdom was his search tool, his magnifying glass. But here in our second point now, the preacher questioned wisdom itself. So first, the quest of wisdom. Now, the question of wisdom. The question of wisdom. He takes up the tool itself, putting the magnifying glass under the microscope in verses 16 through 18. Wondered if there was something he was missing in wisdom itself, since it failed to find him any answers. And verse 16 starts with a proud declaration. He says, I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. Here, Kohelet, the great assembler of wisdom, boasts in all that he's accumulated knowledge-wise. He had the greatest volume of wisdom ever acquired, the greatest experiences ever lived. And he said to himself, look how great I've become. No one has ever been better than me. And yet, wisdom yielded no answers to this man. So in verse 17, we see another examination. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. Again, just as in verse 13, he applies his heart in an all-consuming, earnest endeavor, and he took a deeper dive into both ends now, wisdom versus folly. To put wisdom on trial, he had to pit it against its polar opposite to see if he wasn't missing something behind the other door. He sought to understand all things good and bad. He longed to know all virtues and vices. Madness and folly here describes just a simple-mindedness, a daftness, a senselessness. If wisdom means skillful living as we defined it in the past, then folly is unskilled living, being bad at life. If knowledge is understanding, then madness is lack of that, failure to comprehend, a refusal to think. So the preacher has moved from the intellectual to the epicurean, to turn off the brain and to turn up the flesh. Let's abandon mental faculties and just enjoy. But even after partying harder than anyone, what did he find in it all? He arrived at the same conclusion. Verse 17, at the end, I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. When all was said and done, he found exactly the same thing. Everything is vanity. Striving after wind, grasping for air, and coming up with nothing. So it seems that there is no benefit to gaining knowledge, but no benefit to lacking knowledge either. The wise and the fool are the same. They live the same sad life, and then at the end they die. And here comes the second proverb and conclusion, then verse 18. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. The pursuit of knowledge does not fulfill life or give anyone significance. We think it will, though. We love knowledge, don't we, as a society? We're told to study hard and learn in school to become successful in our careers and in our crafts. And in general, the more we know, the better off we are, right? We can use knowledge to our advantage. If we know how things work, we can uh, turn them for, uh, to be resourceful about it. 
be strategic about it. We tune our ears to borderline conspiracy theories in case somebody knows something we don't. We want to know all the industry secrets, which is why we click on links like 10 things flight attendants won't tell you or what the last digits of the prices at Costco means. After all, knowledge is power, right? We just have to have the code, break the code. Not according to this proverb. The reality is the opposite. Knowledge isn't power at all. It's pain. Knowledge is pain. Knowledge of the world not only fails to satisfy, but it actually produces grief. How crazy is that analysis? Imagine being hungry, so you eat something, but instead of fulfilling you, it gives you a stomachache. That's knowledge. There's a net negative to acquiring it, says the guy who acquired it the most. Right? Both lines in this proverb repeat the same truth, and I think the reason he boasted in verse 16 so much is so that we can see him in verse 18. He who acquired the most wisdom also experienced the most vexation. He who had the most experiential knowledge also had the most sorrow. Vexation is anger that comes out of distress. It's frustration from being constantly provoked. Sorrow is anguish, even to the point of mental and physical pain. This, he says, is the burden of knowledge. This is the burden of wisdom. That the more you know, the worse the world seems. The more you're worried about, the more you suffer. Imagine every new piece of data you receive is like another trigger bite on your ankle. Every nugget of truth is a new canker sore in your mouth. It's death by a thousand paper cuts. The human experience of gaining knowledge is ultimately increasing pain. That's the preacher's wisdom right here. So perhaps it is true that ignorance is bliss, right? I'll ask, have you ever experienced disillusionment? Something was ruined for you because it was explained, the magic was revealed, like a a magical illusion or behind-the-scenes footage of your favorite movie. If you ever got stuck on Space Mountain at Disneyland, the, the dark ride roller coaster, and they turn on all the lights, you'll realize it's just a rickety, drab, gray coaster cramped into a boring concrete dome. And you also realize if you raise your hands too high, they could get lopped off. Before that, it was all wonder and excitement. But gaining knowledge is like realizing that Space Mountain is actually scarier with the lights on. On a more serious note, think about the innocence of childhood. For a child, everything is fun and play and love. I see this in my own kids, five and three years old, and and everything's just great. You know, when you're little, maybe Santa Claus and the Tooth Fairy are fun to believe in. When you're in preschool, everyone is your friend. You have no responsibilities. But as you grow up, as life goes on, you get more and more burdened. You discover early on that not everyone likes you. You don't get along with everyone else. You get bullied. You break your first bone. You learn that not everything you had believed or been told was true. You learn that people lie. You live through your first natural disaster. You experience your first grief or loss, whether a pet or a grandparent. The bitter pain of divorce. As you get older, you learn that chronic illnesses exist and that people suffer every day. You learn about injustice in the world, about slavery and oppression, trafficking, genocide. You learn about addiction and mental health, about war and persecution and terrorism. And it's not just global woes, it's personal ones too. Still, you experience your first rejection, your first breakup, your first termination from work, 
the loss of a friend, the loss of a child. Every new phase of life adds on more woes. Every new experience and discovery is one that chips away at your hopefulness and hastens you on toward the bitter end. Ultimately, you lose your youth. Your body starts to break down. You lose some aspects of your health and ability. You lose your independence, relying on others for mobility and even simple tasks. Your mental acuity diminishes. And both physically and figuratively, every step you take becomes more slow and painful and burdened. And again, this is life. This is your life and mine. The more you experience, the more you hurt. The more you learn, the more you grieve. That's the proverb. Wisdom is distressing and knowledge is depressing. And there's no way out. No release from this evil business of life. Now hold on. Okay. Before we get too despondent, we have to stop and ask, is this actually true? Is this actually true? Wasn't wisdom God's good gift to Solomon? Is this wisdom that leads to trouble and despair, the very same wisdom that Solomon puts forth in the book of Proverbs as the only thing in life worth pursuing and seeking that leads to life? The answer is, of course not. It's not the same. Not all wisdom is wisdom. All that glitters is not gold. No, what the preacher is talking about in this text is a human wisdom, or at the very least, wisdom applied within the wrong realm. It is a wisdom that looks to this earth. It's a wisdom that adopts that worm's eye view, that looks only under the sun. Because under the sun, intellectual pursuit and acquisition of knowledge will never answer the most important fundamental questions of life and existence. It will never change anything in the big scheme of things. Think about the history of humanity. Are we as a collection of human beings any more wise than prior generations? For all our progress in history, are we any better off? Now, there's no denying that we've made tremendous scientific discoveries and inventions. We've revolutionized communication by leaps and bounds. We've increased production and advanced civilization. We have new technologies. We've interconnected the world in real time. We've explored the depths of space and the sea. We have computers that can think harder and process faster than any human in each of our pockets. We've come a long way for sure. We're smarter, I guess. But for all our progress, are we any wiser? We were smart enough to figure out fission, but foolish enough, you could say, to use it to build the atomic bomb. We were smart enough to invent the internet, but mad enough to do all the insane, irresponsible things we do with it. We've made progress, certainly, in our knowledge and our capability as a species, but are we different from any of our ancestors? You know, so many fields of study emphasize knowledge as the answer. There's one thing I learned at the UCLA project, it was this, that anthropology and sociology say, if we understand mankind better historically and culturally, we can advance as a species. All the sciences and engineering say, if we discover how things work by experiments and experience, we can make life better for everyone. Philosophy says, if we can figure out how we know what we know and can be certain that what we know is true and real, then we will be happy. And all these fields of study have been advancing over the course of time for centuries, even millennia. So then why in the 21st century does it feel like people are no closer to their answer in their quest for meaning? 
For all are advancing in collective human knowledge. More people than ever, it seems, are directionless, wandering purposelessly, trying to find the source of satisfaction. We're all doing our own mini versions of the preacher's quest, the royal experiment, trying everything. Has humanity gotten any wiser? Human wisdom is merely an introspective wisdom because in it, we only look into ourselves and to ourselves and to our world alone. Godly wisdom is different. Human wisdom is gained by personal experience. Godly wisdom is given by God as a gift for those who ask in faith. Human wisdom looks to the world to explain its function through its own lens. Godly wisdom looks to the Lord and lives in submission to his will and his work. Human wisdom attempts to determine what we should be doing and what moral theory we should adhere to as a species. Godly wisdom understands that our morality is objectively defined according to God's righteous standard alone. Human wisdom looks vainly under the sun, but godly wisdom looks beyond. And this is the point. If anyone ever could have gotten it, figured it out, solved the puzzle, it would have and should have been the preacher. But all his learning only led him to this conclusion. All is vanity, even knowledge. Why? Because the preacher was looking under the sun for the meaning of life under the sun. But as we'll find as the book progresses and the hope that he gives us toward the end, the answer does lie beyond the sun. All the things that truly matter are things that you can never suss out by observation or human experience. And don't get me wrong, I'm not against knowledge I'm not saying knowledge is useless and doesn't get us anywhere. No, there's still value to knowledge. But I would say that it is only of eternal value in as much as your knowledge is connected with God, the eternal God. There is a right way we can look at this earth. There's a right way to take this vantage point. It's to obey the Lord, that we can fill it and subdue it in obedience to his command. God wants us to enjoy this world He's created its beauty and its depths for our exploration. But even so, the purpose of creation is to testify to the existence and glory of God the creator and to lead us to awe and wonder at his intelligent design. God has given us all things to eat and partake and enjoy. And I say we definitely know how to do that. The things of earth and the inventions of man can be fulfilling to us only in as much as they reflect the creativity and glory of God. And only in as much as they deflect all of our worship, not to the creation, but to the creator. Now, thankfully, a fallen creation and this world we live in east of Eden is not all we have to go on. God himself has given us a better way to know him. Turn with me to Colossians. Colossians in your New Testament. Colossians chapter 1. Now, Colossians chapter 1 talks about the true knowledge and wisdom that we can have. Because there is a knowledge that does not cause despair, but gives hope. There is an understanding that does not depress us, but uplifts the human spirit. There is a wisdom that does not lead to death, but leads to life. Colossians 1 opens with Paul's prayer for the church in Colossae. Look at Colossians 1 verse 9. And he prays, or he writes, And so from the day we heard... We have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. In all spiritual wisdom and understanding, 
so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. The knowledge of God and the knowledge of his will is possible. Spiritual wisdom and understanding are offered to us. It can be in us. We can be increasing in it. And it can be bearing fruit in us, strengthening, strengthening us, helping us to endure this life. It's what Paul prays for. It's what we should pray for and what we should pray for each other. How does it happen? Continue in verse 12. Colossians 1.12. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to give us understanding of the gospel truth that he brought us out of darkness, delivering us from this kingdom of death and moving us into his kingdom of life and light, the kingdom of his son, Jesus Christ. And that was accomplished by the redemption that Christ brought, the forgiveness of sins that he offered when he died on the cross for us. Knowing God is possible in this world. We can know God because of his son. His light has shone into our darkness. You see, we were all living as dead men, condemned under the sin of Adam and the sin of our own hearts alienated from the paradise of Eden and exiled from the presence of God, sentenced to God's wrath because of our disobedience. But Jesus came to provide the only solution to our earthly afflictions. He paid our innumerable debt on the cross. He took our griefs. He carried away our sorrows. And if we believe in him as Savior, he comes to usher us back one day into Eden. God has made it possible for you to know him. Even when your sins separated you from him, he has provided the way back. Now, I might not know your specific situation right now, but if you are far from God or have ever have never known God and you feel this way, that life is meaningless, then this message is for you. Perhaps the idea that I read earlier and spoke about really resonated with you that life is just one big growing burden, a miserable task that gets worse and worse and worse, and then you die. If you're here today in search of meaning, you're in the right place. I'm here to tell you that your quest can come to an end right now. There's no need to try anything else once you have tasted and seen the goodness of God. Jesus is the living water, and if you drink of him, you will never thirst again. And Jesus said of himself in John 14, 6 and 7, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And he continues, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Look, if you're here and you want to know God, you need to receive Jesus. It's the only way to see him. Receive his message that he is God and has come to seek and save the lost. Receive his salvation, believing that his death covers all your sins and restores you to a right standing before God. 
receive his promises that you will have eternal life in heaven in the presence of God. I urge you today to repent and believe and to submit yourself to his leading over your life. You will know him not as a harsh slave driver, but as a loving master and father who promises joy. Even though life will continue to be hard and difficult for the believer, there's hope and there's joy and there's security because of Christ and because of the Holy Spirit in us. For the believer here, I likewise want to encourage you to set your affections beyond the sun. This world has its attractions and distractions, but seek first the kingdom of heaven, not the kingdom under heaven. Like the preacher, apply your whole heart. Make it your life's full endeavor, every effort to pursue Christ alone. Everything else can and must be weighed and considered as nothing, as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord. When we live in the knowledge of God, we are freed. Freed not to strive, but to expend ourselves now for his service and for his glory. We are freed to apply our hearts to serve him, the holy God, and to wholeheartedly give meaningful portions of our time, our gifts, our skills, and our money for his purposes to advance Christ's eternal kingdom. And to the Christian, all of this sacrifice and all of the suffering is no longer an unhappy business. Even when there is tribulation and trial and persecution, which Christ himself promised to us, it is not an unhappy business under the sun but a blessed stewardship. Life becomes a blessed stewardship. Everything we have has been given to us, and we won't take it with us, and so best be used here. For us to be good and faithful servants is not a sorry task. It's not a tragic existence. It's not a lousy job, but an eternally rewarding one. We can enter into the joy of our master when all is said and done. Today, the preacher has taken us on an adventure so that we don't have to. He's reached deep into his bottomless coffers to be an example for us. So we don't have to spend a dime if only we're willing to listen to him and learn from him. You and I are not like the preacher. We will never have enough, know enough, or be enough to do what he did. But his conclusions are recorded so that we don't have to try. He tried it all so that we can simply seek the wisdom and knowledge of God and find rest in him. I'll close with a quote from Charles Spurgeon. He says, Dear reader, you need not try other forms of life in order to see whether they are better than the Christians. If you roam the world around, you will see no sights like a sight of the Savior's face. If you could have all the comforts of life, If you lost your Savior, you would be wretched. But if you win Christ, then should you rot in a dungeon, you would find it a paradise. Should you live in obscurity or die with famine, you will yet be satisfied with favor and full of the goodness of the Lord. Will you pray with me? Lord, we praise you and thank you that you are knowable. You are knowable through your word of scripture that you have ordained and preserved for us 
by your inspiration and your decree. And we thank you for your word, Jesus Christ, your son, through whom and in whom only we have access to you and can see you and know you. We thank you for Christ, our Savior. Help us, Lord, to grow in the knowledge of you. Let that transform all that we are and all that we do. And I pray especially for those here who are hearing the good news for the first time or have been wrestling with it lately or who might be realizing for the first time that they might not, that they might not truly know you and believe. We pray that your spirit would transform their hearts right now, that you would regenerate them, that you would bring them to faith, that you would draw them to humility and repentance and confession, that your Holy Spirit would enter and indwell them as they believe on Christ. So I pray, Lord, that you would do your work here this day. Lord, we praise you and we worship you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.